0: If you turn to 2 Samuel, we'll pick it up, chapter 5. Then all the tribes came to David, and it says at Hebron, and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So David is being given right now tribute from the greater portion of a divided kingdom who now realize that all along this man is whom they were to have followed. But we know that at times there are seasons that are required for people to make changes of opinion. Minds can become biased, unfortunately, and hearts can become hardened. There can be particular kinds of resistance that are expressed in just where people are at towards a work that's being done, a teacher that's teaching, a pastor that's pastoring. David is representative of really the whole deal. He is both a king, and he is a shepherd, and he is a teacher, and he is a warrior, kind of a all-in-one Swiss army knife. I should probably say a Jewish army knife. He is really gifted. And yet, in all of the giftings that David has, there has been the need that God has permitted for him to mature in those giftings, becoming better and more refined than he would if it were a shortcut. At times, the shortcuts that we want don't seem like shortcuts at all. They just seem like the next step. Of course, I'm to move into this. I know with certainty God has put this on my heart. It's been evident since birth. I came out of the womb with the Bible in my hand. We can see all of those things perhaps in place, and David would certainly have had a connection spiritually with God that would have said in many times before my time is now. My time is now. My time is now. God will say to him later on, actually just a page flip away towards the end. Your time is when you're mulling things over and you wait for the sound of the mulberry trees. That's your time. And so, we, in where we're at right now, we're ponderers, aren't we? So I would say this. If your ponderings are not in the framework of prayer, you will find yourself very much biased in those ponderings. And I might simply give you a return of terminology. It's a synonym, I know that. But mulling over. While mulling things over in prayer, talking to God, wait for him to say, as you're mulling, listen for the stirring of the mulberry trees. So we'll come up on that, and we'll find out why that was important. From the time of David's commissioning, literally, When his father sent him on a mission to feed his brothers and to put an ear and eye in the field of combat, he was ready. One insult directed to God and he was ready. And so, as we have seen, his life now has brought us to the point of being about 37 and a half years of age. If you're younger than 37 years of age, you'd call him a codger. If you're older than 37 years of age, you'd call him a whippersnapper. But God just calls him ready. He's ready now. Because as he has taken his position in Hebron, even though with what was on his mind and heart to do and the knowledge that he had of what God called him to be, He waited until everything that needed to take place, a general that would be displaced but that would hand off the baton to David with terms of peace before he had been sabotaged by one of David's generals, who now is withstanding really only the heart of God as far as his further obedience or disobedience to David, But David has pronounced a curse on him. And yet it's interesting that will stay in place. But you'll also see this guy take a different position in spite of it. It has a lot of the mysteries in this as some of our great movies and novels. Characters that we haven't yet fully been able to grab a hold of. Suspense that isn't yet fully, you know, bringing us to the end of the clip. We've got a lot of things that lead us to conclusions. And and so the story of David right now is really important because chapter 5 really is him coming into his own. And his own is knowing that he have, he has been owned by God all along. Everything that's happened. And in spite of the things that he did, contrary to God's will... And those have happened. God has brought him now to his own and God's own people to David. It's making this wonderful picture of unity from diversity. We're a diversified group in the church, aren't we? And yet we have been scattered in our diversity. We've been shut out and shut in and everything tells us we need to be in the house of refuge. We need to find Hebron. We need to be about worshiping God. That's what we do. That's who we are. But we're being told by an authority which God has placed over us, this is what you do and you'll do nothing less. And so when We come into situations like this. We realize, wow, we're in a battle just like David. How did he fight his battles? According to the way of the Lord, the word of the Lord, as he molds over the things that are yet still a mystery and the need to advance on further than where he's at, then he has to come to an even different place of strategy. And that's not necessarily falling back on the old ways. It's rather apprehending a new strategy that God's giving him. Pondering over, mulling over the problem right now of now being a king with greater responsibility. God will require for him to wait for the stirring of the mulberry trees. As we closed on the last chapter, which was four... We were given just a little bit of insight, which was important to how we'll see some things as we turn these pages. Because what we were introduced to was the person of Mephibosheth. And he was the youngest son of Jonathan. Right? We had Ishbosheth. And then you have right now this Relationship that now tells us, wow, Jonathan had a son. This son was, I believe the scriptures say, five years old when a nurse trying to save him from a predicament tripped, fell with him, and he became gimp, lame. But he's the only one left in that lineage that, technically, after the death of Ishbosheth, would be the one able to take on the sovereign position of king. What happened? You would think that in those days that strategy would have pulled David over to have him taken out lawfully. It doesn't happen. There's something that we need to recall. It'll be kind of a less developed theme. But what we want to remember is that this person is significant in telling us about the person that David was. He was compassionate and merciful and though he will make mistakes and decisions that he renders towards people or how he finds himself attracted to people, he takes into consideration acts of grace and mercy and compassion. He's a king that in a type represents the heart of the Lord who pursues those who are lame because of sin, blinded because of sin, deaf because of sin, spotted and marked because of sin. And though the Lord has indeed told us as a righteous God, the sinner is at distance from Him because of sin, The distance right now between the closing of chapter four and chapter five is oh so carefully being narrowed. As this one character will just be sublimely kept away, but kept in the mind of David. And it would be brought to his attention when David's going to be summoned by God with the people that are coming to him to anoint him. There's work to do, David. There's an insult coming, David. It's going to touch your heart because it's going to be an insult with regard to the way you were motivationally led to honor your friend, Jonathan, to not touch Mephibosheth who is lame and who at this particular time in David's reign would have been about a 17 year old, probably. at the minimal. So, let's see how this goes right now. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, spoke saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. They've come into agreement with God's will. They've made a pilgrimage. It's not to uh, sign on the dotted line and trick David. They're basically saying, we are one with you. What a good word to say about the body of Christ when we assemble. We're one with God and with one another. How sad it is when division in a church happens, either be it by one or two or many, over nothing, anything other than personality. The personality needs to be in conformity, and it is in conformity if we esteem one over ourselves. How many of us can say, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm coming to Sunday and I know that there are people that are wired differently than me, but my goal is to enter into worship God and I'm going to esteem them better than myself. I'm going to esteem them even though I know they steam me up. I get really hot under the collar. So this surge is happening. From the north to the south, to the what? Place of refuge. This tells us that church is open pictorially. We need to be praying that church is open, that people are able to say one bone, one flesh, one spirit. As you lead, Lord, we will follow. Where you tell us to be, we will be. So keep your ears open. Keep your hearts engaged. Listen. Listen as you're pondering, mulling things over for the stirring of the mulberry trees. Also, in times past when Saul, this is verse 2, was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. The Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. David's not having to say a thing about himself. This is the boast of those in leadership over him. They're saying, history records this. Your faithfulness is evident. We were stupid to even presume that you weren't the one. We saw it in you when you were young and we see it in you now, as you've become older. And you've not forsaken us. We've seen the hardship even in the contemporary battles that have been waged against you, the deception that we know has obviously been imposed on you. And it hasn't changed you one degree. You've had to adjudicate over people that were lying to you, that were enemies of God, and your judgment was severe. You scattered evil with your eyes, but you've embraced us with your heart we know the history of you so that has a lot to do with why god at times doesn't do much with you seemingly before others that you wish he would because your character is being matured while their spirit is diminishing that cranky edge they've got and what they think about you and Think about themselves. That disposition that says they want your position. They want their position heard. They see you on your knees and they want to basically put their foot on your neck. So God allowed all of this to happen that there would be no charge against David taking things into his own hands, but rather receiving from the Lord what had been granted by God's hands. There's no boast that can legitimately be made by any person that God desires to use greatly. And so what does he do? He takes things from you. And he doesn't allow you to live off of accolades He allows you to live off of his word. As we've learned in Galatians, he allows you to live by faith. He seals it up by your belief in that, which your faith has moved you forward in. He says, now in what I have done and what I see you doing exercise in the liberty that I've given to you and the freedom that you have to enjoy your release right now. But Hey, If we could, let's stay in connection with each other. See, God knows that our tendency is once Liberty comes and freedom comes, the voices also come, Hey, your experience with God. Awesome. But we can do, we can do things with you. And we've got some other things that, you know, will work in the way that we see you work and it may be good, but it may not be what God wants. And on that premise, you have to be able to say, this is not the stirring of the mulberries. I'm mulling over things. I'm in prayer. I see your excitement, but it's, it's not the stirring of the mulberries. I need more time to mull things over as I minister before the Lord. But it's a great picture in terms of what we see David right now just seeing As the evidence of, oh, here's a good word we've been talking about, it grace being poured out by God. I imagine this would have been a very tear-invoking moment for him. But he's going to have to remain strong because there's a battle ahead. And there always is when God's doing one of these beautiful outpourings, there's a battle ahead. The enemy doesn't like the outpourings of God's blessings upon his people, which changes the landscape spiritually all the way around. Revival, if it breaks out, is by the grace of God being poured out. The enemy does not like it. We've already seen, in my opinion, him just testing the fear of men with one virus, one little virus that dares call itself the corona, the king virus. The big bad germ, it's not making light of its consequence, but I also cannot make light as well of accidents. People are dying by a variety of ways. in means that we wish it didn't have to happen, but death comes. Is death to provoke us to fear? Do we fear something small in which God says, are you kidding me? I raised up men that pursued giants and one in particular that really motivated everyone to do it. One of the things that God does in these times that seem unprecedented and they are unpredictable, who would have thought it, is to look at the hearts of men who have been given faith and says, so what's it going to be on the scale? fear, or faith. Which way? What do you do? I'm the chief lawgiver. I'm the headmaster. There's a conflict right now with what's being spoken, what is truth, what is not truth. What are you going to do? It's an interesting time right now. And all I can say as a pastor is do what God tells us to do. The ambiguity right now is saying, I'm not leading a charge. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the wind as I'm mulling things over to rustle the leaves in the mulberry trees because I know if that's what I hear, then I also know that I am hearing the work of God. To the Jews, his spirit was as a wind, the Ruach. In the book of Acts, in chapter 1 and 2, we see the beauty. Of the spirit falling upon believers in power that's a picture of what God will do to those who are waiting in Hebron a place of refuge waiting to see if the battle turns and if the people are ready now to give their hearts not to pastors not to a congregation but to the King of Kings one heart bone and flesh and spirit that's when revival breaks out. And when we talk about a breakout, we talk about the need for liberty and freedom, because once you've been put in a place in which you've been shackled in your faith, when those shackles are broken, it's highly motivational. Now, how will you choose to live? What changes will you choose to make? Or even as we looked at today in Galatians, who's your daddy? Who's your father? No, no, no. That's Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is quite subordinate to Father God. With all due respect, but the problem is is when Uncle Sam no longer respects Father God, we've got a division in the family. Somebody has the upper hand. And if Uncle Sam's hands aren't together for prayer, mulling over the predicament of representing one nation under God, we've got a battle. I have to say, not mine. It's God's battle. He wants me in it. But how? I listened for the rustling, the wind to stir the leaves. They grab my ear. And he says, the march is on. So this is... A little bit of going back it's really projecting us quite forward it's kind of becoming right now just a, a real healthy organic smoothie right now and where the scriptures are leaving our mind and right now a glorious situation with David but he's not there yet and when we're not there yet it means we can't make presumptions and assumptions we can't build a strategy if we haven't heard from God spiritually and logically God uses logic by the way and I'm not saying it's found in psychology might be for those who understand that the mind was given by God to man and used ultimately in the intellect for him to think about spiritual matters and about God, I would trust myself to one who says, I've been dealing in psychology. I understand the human mind in accordance and harmony with the gospel. It's deprived. It's depraved. It always wants something. And yet at the same time, there's junk in that brain, not by God, but by culture, the attacks of the enemy. So God wants the mind to be used but he doesn't want it absent from the heart that is intended to be beating for him. And David's going to have to use all of the resources and faculties that have been given to him, even for something that we would say, well, it's just a transition. What's, what could be hard about a transition? Everybody coming. People are hard in transitions. And God can limit how difficult it has to be If we're listening to him and waiting to see how he wants it done. So the praise has gone forth. The history has been recorded. David's heart, I'm sure, is touched. Therefore, verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Notice who the covenant is coming from. It's coming from David, not the elders. The elders certainly would have been able to say, we've been doing this a long time. We're going to make our covenant with you. Okay, here's our terms, here's our contracts. David goes, no, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. I've received terms of peace from you and actually that was bargained for by one who's not among us now, Abner. He made the first decision that ultimately rendered you to make a better decision, to not remain where you were at, but to come forward. He died in that process. I'm the one now that will cut covenant with you as I coveted with Abner. In other words, I already received you on the terms of peace that I offered to Abner. He represented to you what I freely always wanted to give you. They're my terms. And that's what God would say. There are men that have come far earlier than you into a saving faith. In fact, all humanity, in fact, specifically, I will say, Abraham did. That's what we learned about today. He came all the way to the point of despair, of mulling over, who will be my heir? I only have this person. And God said, no, not really. You do have that person. But that is not your error. One from you will come from you and Sarah. Just wait a while. Abraham was one who, at 90 years of age, somewhere between 90 and 100, said, I haven't got a lot of time to wait. So they helped God out in a decision that ultimately complicated their lives and actually complicated the Jewish lives in the nation of Israel today we also are very vulnerable too. So like that, the point that I'm making is that when you go back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, you'll see that God cut covenant with Abraham, and Abraham only could provide what God asked of him. He really couldn't actually shake hands with God on it. You can't shake hands with God on it either. He's offered you the right hand of fellowship. All you can do is take it on his terms, not yours. Doesn't matter what you think about yourself. Doesn't even matter what you think about God, except this, he's bringing you forward. I suggest, as we would see here, indicated, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due season, he shall exalt you. The elders come and they could have, could have had in their motivation. Also, uh, we want to help you run things. All we see is David saying, I'm making a covenant with you. And that's what God has made with you, a covenant. That means a promise that though you have refused it up to this point, maybe some 10, 12, 20, 30 years, it hasn't changed a bit. No matter where you've been, how far you've run, the resistance that you've shown, the harm that you've done, God cut covenant with you. Where? When? Well, you could cite historically back with Abraham because when he said it to Abraham, Abraham was promised that there in his seed would be faith birth, And as the stars of the heaven could be counted, if they could be counted, that was the significance of Abraham's faith and his belief. But it was certainly sealed and ratified upon the cross when one who is likened as the son of David, Jesus Christ, said, If you forgot about it with that guy, you will not forget about it with me. I've died. Now that was a picture. This is a fact. And for you, my purpose has been satisfied. You are forgiven and the spirit of God, you are now gifted. And the decision to be included, come on, confess me with your mouth, believe in your heart that I am God and I've been raised from the dead. Open your mouth and speak it that you might be justified. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's just a, it's a beautiful picture right now here in the ancient of scriptures, but presently in the new covenant of scriptures, what Jesus is doing right now, bringing all nations that have been divided to himself. So David's been anointed, and this would be what you'd call the third round. He had already received it in humility with Samuel. He had already been through this, but now it's with one heart, one nation. And by the way, it speaks at times of what we need to say. I need a fresh anointing. I've believed in my heart since the time I was aware of God's calling on it. But the battle's been raging. I'm many years down the road from that day. I've got a new day and I'm tired. Lord, I need a fresh anointing. See, it's kind of like the ukulele. Who would have thought that the ukulele... Was that the ukulele you played? Yeah. (laughs) I saw another smaller guitar here. Real small. But the transition I was making and thought was who would have thought anything good could come out of a ukulele? I love the ukulele, but I'm saying when I match it to my six string guitar, big, giant, massive, booming guitar, I'm going, come on, that's a little runty instrument. What can you bring out of it? Didn't say that. But as I'm sitting over there waiting to teach, I'm going, who would have thunk that? Maybe to some degree you just got four strings. People are saying you're worthless. You need six. You got to be big in the faith, and all of a sudden this (laughs) this you're likened to a ukulele, and God says, "I do great things with small instruments." And and that really is an important picture—not my boasting in my guitar, but the analogy that some brave young boy said this is my weapon in warfare today i play the least of all the instruments for god and i'm just watching and the bass guitar and going my goodness there's a groove there (laughs) and then you know what it wanted me i i was i was highly getting motivated i'm going to start playing the ukulele because it was motivational and and maybe for some of you, you, you also say, I've, I've been camping too long and what it is I don't have. I want to be a big guitar, but all of a sudden this this big faith was exercised and I'm content and I want to be a... You know what? I'm going to be the rubber band man. I'm going to take a broomstick and mount it on a tub and start plucking it like a bass. I'm going to get a kazoon and start blowing it. I'm going to get a ram's horn from Israel and I'm going to blow it as a shofar, I'm going to get a Jews harp and start playing it. So again, (laughs) deviating just a little bit. This is highly motivational and it's intended to be because there's going to be a battle that wages itself against David. Because God's doing an affirmative work. God's doing an affirmative work in your family, in your life, in the church. And there is a battle that we see that literally we've been invited into and we're starting to feel it. But We can't do anything correctly until we listen in our mulling for the wind to pass through the mulberry trees. Uh, when are you going to get to that rich? I, it's it's here. It's it's what's called the cliffhanger. Okay, for you popcorn eaters and coffee drinkers, it's it's what's motivating you. You want to get to the end of the story, so you're being chummed right now. So it's a beautiful thing that's happening right now before the Lord anointing David king over Israel. David was thirty years old which he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. And actually, that is when God officially said, when he moved to Hebron and David obeyed that word, that that's where he was to go, God clocked him in. So even though he was partially reigning, God considered him fully reigning. Fully reigning. You're not any less just because it's not everything. Everything. But in everything that you're doing, you're being made to do greater things for God. If you'll remain faithful in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven and a half years. And I know what those increments are. This is the second season of pastoring a church, and the first was for seven years. Then there was an act of obedience that was required of me. And then an act in which I needed to move to a city of refuge, and then I needed to pull up and move to the place of pilgrimage, and then I needed to listen to God to establish what he asked of me to do, which is now, as of February the eighth year, I know time and distance, maturing and changing. There's some some things that I don't like about the changes in my life, but they only have to do about me, the way that i want to look the way that i want to be nothing concerning god or god's people we can have that we can have those wish this would have happened earlier in my life and god says it's the perfect timing right now for your life there's enough experience in you that there's a believability about you and no you're not perfect and you could lose use a little bit of work rich A few push-ups here, jogs there, lifting weights like your sons are doing. But God right now is sufficiently satisfied in me as well as in you. If you have the readiness that David has been prepared for all of his life. And now coming to that wonderful opportunity in which he's going to be on the march. So... We have the history. We now have the challenge. Verse six, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David cannot come here. So this is his first challenge. It's rather insulting, but it's also insightful. You need to understand there can be great insights coming from insults. There can be a touch to the heart when there's also a sting to your mind. And this is what's happening. For whatever reason, which we don't yet know in this story, David's heart was set on this place called Jerusalem. And I wouldn't doubt that the time he spent in Ziglag, which was foreign territory under a godless people, stirred in his heart. I want one day to have a place in which I can say, this is the city of my God. He would have been familiar with that area, having moved back and forth from Bethlehem and so forth. But there was something that intrigued him. And you might ask yourself, well, what could make him presumptuous to say that that's the place that he wants because he wants it for God? Well, I don't really have an answer for that except this. If it's God's, it's God's and David represents the heart of God. Therefore, I have no doubt that God put that on his heart and David's going to do what military men do, what Kings do. They make decisions. that says that's God's land. Those are not God's people. They're actually enemies of the Lord. Therefore, I will be an instrument to take that place and deceit God among his people. That's what we know. He's able to hear terminology from the people that basically could be insulting. Even the lame and the blind, they will resist you. (laughs) That's a challenge. David's been on the run now for 10 years solid on the wait for seven and a half years. I wonder how you're going to react to that, David, when you've been insulted. And he thinks back. Lame. Huh. Mephibosheth. I hold nothing against them. That means nothing to me. When I have authority and when I'm able to make a move in that place, I will give placement to that Mephibosheth. And whatever this threat may mean concerning the deaf and the lame, I will make them a part of my kingdom. Even though I have been insulted concerning whether or not they will be used against this work of God, I will not be against them. So at times, God tests our maturity by being insulted in our authority. And yet David, I can just see him reflecting back on Mephibosheth who's been introduced to us just in terms of the crises that happened in his life. And he's probably waiting. Was, was David and my father true? Were they really friends? Wait, I know the way this works. People like me die when I'm all by myself and when I seemingly have the keys to the kingdom. People like me get killed. And I can't even run from this situation. The tension could be grave for Mephibosheth, but he doesn't yet know the heart of David. And that's why very often when we talk about the Lord and we talk about the grave and all the fears that are stirred in people concerning who, what's God going to do? He's going to do exactly what he did on Calvary. He pronounces forgiveness and he asks for surrender And he makes terms of peace and he invites you in, in your lameness, in your deafness, in your blindness, but yet in the capacities that remain in you to become better and more suitable than you ever have before. That's the picture. It's a great picture. Well, we see some of the things right now that, again, relate to this. This stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. That's what it's called. So when you go to Jerusalem today, just towards the outer, what you'd call proper walls or matured historical walls today, is called the city of David. It was actually the starting of what became Jerusalem that was developed by David's son Solomon. And it's fascinating to know the history there. But David wants elevation and elevation is Zion. And elevation is ultimately where Calvary is located. And it's the place in which Moriah is located. All of these things compressed in the ordinance of history to bring out the best experiences and provisions of God to people, men and women of faith. That's where David wants to go. Where he knows in his heart, that's where God has made a mark that is where God is going to make his mark. That's the place that I want to be at. And that's what we see here. So David makes this challenge. Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be um, chief and captain. Therefore, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. They say that. They imply that David's no better than them. They've implied that there's a hatred by David towards them. They're just lookouts. Because of their condition, they've got nothing else to do but, but hear. <laughs> they can't run from it. So in order to get paid for being acutely sensitive to conditions of attacks... That's their job. It'll cost them their lives if they fall asleep, and they won't be able to run. Therefore, what are you going to do? Be good at what it is you do. David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. What happened? Well, we'll find out that one in another area of scripture obviously went up through that water shaft and took over the city, opened the gates. The surge happened, and And the enemy was disbanded, dispatched and disbanded. David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around him from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. So we don't spend a lot of time in terms of the combat, not in this incident. Just that David forged a challenge and one man stood up to answer that challenge and actually did it precisely the way he was asked to do it. And that, by the way, is Joab, the guy that David just a while back pronounced a curse on that would, in fact, follow him the entirety of his life and the lineage of his ancestry. So it does tell you that even God has the ability to take an individual who actually behaved quite contrary to the way he should have and who did not honor the king in the manner that he should have, but who all of a sudden, and we know there's a motivation here, hey, You find a way in, and I'll give you placement here. Again, we can cite maybe not the best strategy to use, but God is also showing you that in human events, he allows us to make certain decisions in the field and to live with ultimately the blessing of it or the consequence following it. And there right now has been a blessing. Where Job before was a curse and had now been accursed, He's a blessing and it shows you who can figure it out where at one time you may have been a curse. Now you're a blessing where at one time people accursed you. God says, I've forgiven you. I'm, I'm blessing you. I'm, I'm doing a new work in you. That old man, that old manner and way that you once operated that was pages back. You're going to obey my instructions and you're going to go into the stronghold of the enemy and you're going to open up the gates. We leave it at that in terms of the picture. So David now has called this the City of David. It's dedicated to the Lord. He'll have something inspiring coming up in the sixth chapter. But the Lord, the most important thing is there's the Lord God of hosts was with him. The Lord God of hosts is with you. If you're desiring to... Make a place of honor for God in your heart. God is with you. And he will do extraordinary things on behalf of you because of that decision to no longer follow in the way of your heart, but to give your heart over to the Lord. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. This would be probably his personal house. But there is also the city, which he considered the house of God, which he was invited to be literally the steward of. But notice all the people that God is bringing. We had a surge like this happen when our time ended at Seascape, Six years and we had to be ready to move into a place in one weekend and God allowed by the people of God, carpenters and painters and movers and shakers to come and we moved to church in one weekend from a week's worth of laboring for the city of God, for the house of the Lord. Pretty amazing. We want to see God continue to evidence himself in that place. But if he says, you know what? That was just a tent. I've got something else for you. Then I want to be able to say, rejoice. This is awesome. Look what he allowed us to do to be in two years. Look what he's done. If he could have done this in two years, moved us in one weekend, is there anything that God can't do? And the answer would be no. But until we hear of that, as we listen mulling things over in prayer to the wind blowing through the mulberry trees. We say this is the encampment of God. So all of these things are happening and David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. That's what is incumbent upon you. You got to know what God's doing. And you got to be able to say, this is God's doing, therefore, who can undo it? That's not with haughtiness of saying, I know that God's done this work. I know that he's into it. I see the evidence of the people around me. Who can undo it? Well, the enemy can through fear. The government can through mandates. But it doesn't really diminish the power of God to satisfy his will among the people of God, or even those who are in opposition from God. He's still, as I said on Sunday, the headmaster. He'll masterfully play that complicated field of the chessboard and put that queen and that king ultimately in check and checkmate. No other move can you make because I own this board and all the players on it and all the positions that they occupy and every move that they've been lawfully, strategically able to make, I've mastered them and removed them and replaced them. I, the Lord God, heaven is my throne and the cathedrals of men and the government of men are my footstool, he would say in Isaiah. Well here we go with David's compromise. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron also more sons and daughters were born to David of course that's what happens when you have this kind of problem and his son would exceedingly uh be greater in that area of defying the Lord. But we've cited before Deuteronomy seventeen, seventeen: kings are not to multiply wives. He already had six. He's multiplying more now. I still believe in a study before God was really saying, Abigail's your woman. She's just the top tier right now. Be satisfied. You earned her in a time of listening to her voice that I gave her in that moment in which you were ready to commit murder. But at any rate, we have to leave that because God in the Old Testament reflects also the weaknesses of men, but he doesn't take away from the spirituality of men. We can both be highly effective, deeply passionate for God concerning the things that we want to do. But then on the other side of it, we can find ourselves influenced very much in our humanity. But the law had been written and those men that violated that law complicated their life. We should just leave it at that. His life got complicated. Over 18 children. uh, I think that anybody that has a child, your life is blessed but it has complications in terms of raising that child. More children, greater blessings, greater complications. But the girl thing and the wife thing, you want to talk about a house that soon will become an impossibility to manage. That's what we see here. He will fail rather conclusively domestically. God doesn't want to see that happen. And so he would say to men, don't multiply your wives. Don't have eyes that lust. And don't try to make concession for, if you would, the winking of the eye." So that's just a fact. Kings are not to make place for that. It's being shown here that David did. Part of it was political. The more, the more fame you had with women, the men had a greater admiration for you. So if you could lop off enemies' heads and you had women that were fawning over you, you were the man. And who's going to mess with you? And that's kind of what happens. It's a bit different than the way we see things today. And praise the Lord, it is that we see things differently, likened more, obviously, as Jesus has told us to behave. But at any rate, that's the situation presented in verse 13. And now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And I'm going to bypass those names right now because my eyes. I need a new prescription on glasses, but we'll pick it up in verse 17 if you'll come down there. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The implication here is that he's not running from them. He's actually going into the stronghold of prayer. Why? For the tearing down of strongholds. He's doing right now basically what men of God need to do. In times of attacks, we need to be in prayer. But we also need to say it can't be simply in times of attack. It has to be actually prior to the attack. I'll be better prepared if I'm praying in advance of the attack. But when the attack happens, I will be given better clarity on what to do and how to do it. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So we're in verse 18, verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Good job, David. You're making inquiry. And he's making inquiry specifically on the people that are attacking him. So we have to be specific. We, Shall I go up against the world system right now? Uh, that's pretty broad, Rich. Do you think you can tackle that? How about just the neighbor that's got a grouchy problem with you? How about just some of the people that hang with you and are those who don't really see things the way that you do. But I want you to work in their lives with patience and grace and mercy. At any rate, David's making inquiry. We see this as fruitful. And as he's making inquiry and the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Here's a word from the Lord. Doubtless. God's saying, I don't doubt it. Do you doubt it? Don't doubt it. It's doubtless. So one of the things about faith is that fear moves in quickly to subordinate it. God's saying very specifically, doubtless. So if he's saying that to you right now, then what do you have to doubt? You only have to doubt God. If he says not only with the promise, go up and do it, doubtless. It means it's going to prevail. This could be a great word literally for the church right now, doubtless, doubtless. I'm going to be with you on this. The Philistines will be given over into your hands. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal, Perazim, meaning a breakthrough, like a dam breaking. We have dams breaking that are destroying homes. This was like a breakthrough, God destroying the enemy. David sees it, and he's marveling. It literally means that on God's word, God did it his way, and we don't even see what participation David had to do except believing and trusting in the Lord. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. The images would speak of the idolatry. That doesn't like idolatry, so David went in. David took them away, meaning that they have no place in anything that is God's land, God's territory. God works still in this nation to remove idolatry from her, spiritual idolatry, the things that men worship made in their image as opposed to believing that God has made man in his image and we are to worship God and him alone. And then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the Valley of Raphael, so they have retreated and therefore, David inquired of the Lord again. He said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come up upon them in the front of the mulberry trees. So David makes another inquiry, and then this is the strategy that's given to him. You're going to go around them this time. You're not going to face off with them. You're going to go around them, and I'm going to cue you in with what you will hear. And this is what you will hear. And he goes on to say, and it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gazir. That concludes chapter 5. And so this is what we know pictorially. In Hebrews chapter 1, somewhere halfway, 1st, 3rd, and he makes his ministers as wind. He makes his angels as wind and his ministers as fire. And so when I see the breeze of the curtain blowing and when I see the wisping of the leaves rustling through the wind, I always say, On the march, Lord, on the march. Man, we fly kites in what you're doing on the march as you're dispatching angelic authority. When I'm out under the night skies and I see those blazing flames of fire, it reminds me of Hebrews 1 and his ministers as a flaming fire. Oh, some say it's a shooting star. I always go, man, that is a seraphim on dispatch. And I say, Lord, can you just Give me one more. This is the reality that our God controls everything above us that we are upon terra firma, that we can swim in, that we can dig down into. We can't outrun Him, but we can beautifully, powerfully see Him in what is His favor towards us move the mountains, move the heavens, suspend the waters, make the earthquake. And David was seeing in this, you're a great general, David, and you've made plans that in battle have been fruitful, but never forget that if you don't seek me on the strategy, you may have a consequence in the outcome. However, If you've been given a command, you march on that order until a new one is required of you. Your heart will know. Your assessment will be true. Voice it to me. Take the stronghold of prayer. Ask me and my direction will be doubtless for victory.